Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Christians have access to him at all times. This is this is in and of itself is a truth worth praising him for eternity for. Um, and the letter to the Philippians by Paul, I'm going to read chapter three, verse eight, and this is in the message version. So it's a bit of a bit of an odd translation. It's a paraphrase. Actually, it says, yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung is actually what he says right here it says right there at the bible church and then he goes (laughs) to say i've dumped it all in the trash so that i could embrace christ church this ought to be the mentality of every christian taking joy in knowing christ i think as christians this might be a topic we overlook but church let's choose today let's choose this morning to adopt the same mentality that paul had concerning jesus if we consider seriously um, the worth of Christ and how it, everything else in life pales in comparison to knowing Jesus. Let that affect your mentality this morning, church. All right. Hey, you can be seated if you like. I don't know if you saw the kids. Uh, some of them look like they're getting dragged down to kids' church. <laughs> and uh, I just know that when I was growing up, that was me. So uh, it can end well. I just want you to know it can end well. And I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Acts this morning. We're going to look in a couple places here, but uh, let's start in Acts chapter 26, and we'll take a look back in Luke 24. And you might wonder, what does Acts 26 have to do with uh, the resurrection, with Easter? Well, we could go almost anywhere in the New Testament, and it's the application of what God has done in Christ on the cross. And so... Um, the events of Jesus' death are probably well known to most of us. Um, yeah, try again. Uh, he was betrayed by a friend. Remember, as they celebrated Passover, he was betrayed by a friend. Um, Judas went and sold Jesus out. Uh, he prayed, Christ prayed for strength in the garden. And then uh, as uh, he finished praying, you remember he said to his disciples, uh, would you pray with me uh, because I don't want you to enter into temptation, and so pray with me. And, of course, they were tired and from all of the Passover celebration and ended up falling asleep. But uh, he said to them, finally, um, awake, my betrayer is coming. And Judas came with some of the temple guard, and they took Jesus into custody. And he was taken to a trial where the guilty verdict was already decided. It was decided ahead of time that he was to be found guilty, and they they brought witnesses in to corroborate corroborate their uh, interpretation of what Jesus was about. And uh, of course, those that found him guilty were the it was kind of the Jewish uh, Supreme Court, and they had no power in that day to execute anyone. They could only pass judgment, and so they. Uh, passed a guilty verdict, but they needed Pilate, the Roman governor, to execute Jesus. And so they sent him to Pilate, but suddenly the charge changed from blasphemy to insurrection, magically. And they brought him before Jesus. They said he's guilty of insurrection. He says, 
He's a king, and we acknowledge no king but Caesar. Now, if all the people had heard those guys say that, they would have been dead meat. But they said it because it was the pragmatic thing to do. It accomplished what they expected to be accomplished. And so uh, Pilate, of course, was made a little bit nervous by that. He talked to Jesus a little bit, found nothing wrong with him. And so he said, well, this really isn't uh, my uh, jurisdiction. It's his jurisdiction politically, but he doesn't know enough about the Jewish laws to really pass judgment on this. So he sends Jesus off to Herod, and Herod uh, dresses him up in his court and uh, puts on a little pomp and circumstance, and they mock him a little bit. But in the end, Herod says, I don't find anything wrong with him, and so he sends him back to to Pilate. And Pilate is trying to find a way out of this situation. I don't think he's I don't think he gets away with clean hands. But it seems to me, if, uh, from reading the Gospels, Pilate really doesn't want to have to execute Jesus. He wants to find some way out. And so he suggests this other guy whose name also was Jesus, Jesus Barabbas. Uh, and by the way, Barabbas means son of the father, son of the father. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So they say, well, who do you want us to release? This Barabbas, who is, by the way, an insurrectionist. He's probably there because he killed a Roman soldier or something like that. And, of course, that's the kind of Messiah that people are looking for, somebody that will fight against the Romans. And Jesus wasn't about that. He consistently says, my kingdom is not of this world. And even as he talks about the kingdom of God, it it seems that he's talking about a kingdom on a different plane. And so there uh, the, the crowd makes the choice, and they said, we would rather have you release to us Barabbas. And so Pilate says, one last time, what would you have me to do with this Jesus? And they said, crucify him. Crucify him. And so he was, he was judged guilty. Pilate washed his hands. And you remember in one of the Gospels it says that while he was seeing Jesus, uh, Pilate's wife sent a message and said, don't have anything to do with this guy. I had a bad dream about this. And so... Uh, Pilate really, (laughs) he was scared about what all of this meant, but the one thing that he didn't want to have happen is an uprising. And so in order to appease the crowd, especially those religious leaders, he uh, had Jesus crucified. They took him, they flogged him, and uh, the the whips that they used were such that uh, the leather, when they got wet with blood, they clung to the skin, and then there was bone and fragments in there, and it would tear flesh away from the body. So a person who was flogged in that way was near death already. They put a mock crown of thorns on his head. They pulled out his beard, and they spit in his face. Then he was taken to the place of the skull, and if you know the story, he staggered, and they pulled in a, a certain Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross for him, and they came to the place of the skull, and they They uh, nailed him to the cross through his feet and wrists. He was mocked by the passerbys. They said, you saved others, but can you save yourself? And uh, at one point, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama uh, sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And somebody said, well, he's calling for Elijah. Let Elijah come rescue him. They made fun of Jesus, and even the thieves on the cross, at first it seems as if both thieves are mocking him, and then one finally acknowledges, man, this guy is innocent. And he asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He cried out to the Father, 
as he felt distance and separation from him for the first time. You know, sin creates that separation, but if you think about Jesus' sinless life, he's never experienced that kind of separation from the Father. And in this moment, on a cross, a cursed sign of of sinful humanity, he feels distance from the Father, and he says, why have you forsaken me? He breathes out his last, and then he died. They took him down from the cross. They buried him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And then, of course, in uh, Luke chapter 24, it tells us the rest of the story. On the first day of the week, uh, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their face to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. (laughs) Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, son of man, must the uh, Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Shame on them. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And so we have the story in four Gospels, and uh, the earliest account of the resurrection is probably 1 Corinthians 15, where they think maybe somewhere around a decade or within two decades after the resurrection, we already have the testimony of the Apostle Paul saying that all this has happened. And he accounts for people that had seen Jesus. And one of the um, arguments against the resurrection is that this is all legend. And what every sociologist will tell you is that legends take time to develop. But in 1 Corinthians 15, and we know the date of that because we have historical facts that place Paul in uh, Corinth in the 50s. Within two decades of that, not enough time for a legend to grow up, Paul is already quoting a creed. There's a creed in the first part of 1 Corinthians where it talks about uh, he died according to the scriptures, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And they'll tell you, uh, Bible scholars will tell you that's an early creed, and creeds take time to develop. And so what that tells us is it pushes this back to right after when Jesus was crucified and rose again. And so there's not enough time for this to become and blossom into a legend. This is somebody's eyewitness account. And today I want to declare to you, somebody said you don't so much preach the resurrection as you proclaim the resurrection, that we serve a risen Savior. Are you glad for that? That has a lot of implications to it. Some of them we should love. Some of them we probably don't like every day. Because Jesus is risen, we have to submit to him as Lord of our lives. And we probably love all of the fact that he's our Savior, but sometimes we don't love for him to be Lord when it means that he wants something different from what we want. Nobody will say amen to that, but come on, it's true, isn't it? Sometimes he wants things different from us. But we serve a risen Savior. If you haven't done it yet, uh, this 
this Easter season, I would encourage you to pick one of the Gospels and read the resurrection story. We just read the one from Luke. It seems like the resurrection portion is usually about eight verses. Luke's is 12. But Matthew 28, 1 through 8, if you'd like to read Matthew, Mark 16, 1 through 8, um, John 20, 1 through 8, see, what I, see the, uh, how that works, and then Luke 24, 1 through 12. C.S. Lewis said, if uh, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, if it's false, it's of no importance, if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I think that's really uh, profound and important, to borrow that same word, uh, for us today to understand that we're not talking about something that's just a little bit important. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it's of infinite importance to us. If he did not, even as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, then if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. And we are, of all people, most to be pitied. In other words, the, the, the fact of Jesus' resurrection is what establishes for us the gospel. If he wasn't raised, let's all go home. Let's quit wasting our time. Let's not do this anymore. Let's do something else. But if he's raised, it should call for us to give total allegiance to him. And so I'd like you to consider today the importance of the gospel. If someone's been raised from the dead... Not just a life ebbing away that's been de- you know, defibrillated back to a beating heart, but as someone who's died and pronounced dead and laid in the tomb and supernaturally revived, it matters to everyone. It matters to everyone, especially when that promise has been communicated by his followers to mean that because he has life, we can have life. It's important. We want to take a look at Acts chapter 26, and this is important because this shows one of Jesus' early followers and the response that he has to meeting the resurrected Christ. Paul was constantly dogged by opposition everywhere he went, and he was dogged both from uh, a Jewish element that didn't like the fact that he was preaching Jesus as Lord and Messiah, and he was also dogged by a Gentile element, and that Gentile element didn't like the fact that Paul was talking about a resurrection from the dead. And so he had this opposition growing around him because of what he preached. But uh, his latest trouble came here because he was accused of being, uh, because of, he was accused because of what he preached and who he was seen with, a certain Gentile. They thought he brought, they, they thought he brought this Gentile into the temple, which was unlawful. And so this riot begins to develop in order Paul's life to be saved. He appeals to uh, Caesar, and it takes him down this two-year journey, and he ends up in, a, in Caesarea, which is another city, and uh, he is brought before the Roman procurator Festus, and Festus has these visitors that are with him, Agrippa, who's a Jewish king, and Bernice, his wife, sister, sorry, sister. It says, uh, Agrippa said to Paul, Uh, You have permission to speak. So they bring Paul out, and uh, they ask him a question about, they're asking him questions about why he's on trial, and they're hoping to find some reason to let him go, because they can't find anything wrong with him. That sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? So they are questioning him, and so Agrippa is a visiting king, and he says to Paul in chapter 26, verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. 
And so Paul motioned with his hand, and he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way that I lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for, as, uh, for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. I'd like you just to keep a mental note of that word hope. Verse 7, this is the promise, uh, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that because uh, that these Jews are accusing me, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So he's telling us what that hope is. It's the hope of the resurrection, and it's, it's found in Christ. Verse 9 says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon. King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard the voice saying to me in Aramaic. It's actually the Hebrew tongue is what the Greek says there. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so then Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, listen, the Messiah would suffer as uh, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul, Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. You've been too much in the books, dude, and you're, uh, you're going crazy. I'm not insane, most excellent uh, Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. It was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, 
I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become as I am, except for these chains. That's a, uh, I, I acknowledge that that's a little bit of a strange passage to talk about on Easter, but, but here we have somebody that their whole life has been transformed by the resurrection of Christ. They've met Christ. Their whole life is geared toward promoting and talking about the resurrection of Christ. They will die, this person, Paul, will die proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. And that's significant to me, and I think it ought to be significant to us that Christianity, if it's true, it's of utmost importance. If it's not true, it's of no importance. To Paul, he shows us that it's tremendously important, and he was willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. We have in verses 1 through 8 Paul's defense. So, Paul is defending here the kind of life that he's living. And so what this tells us, and it tells me, and it ought to say to all of us, is that the resurrection of Jesus has a lasting impact on people's lives. For Paul, it's led him to what he does with his life. It's going to lead him to how he'll die. Because of meeting Christ, he knows what he's living for, he knows what's worth dying for, and he knows in whom he believes. That's what transformed Paul, he was known before. He talks about that a little bit in these first eight verses. And uh, he says, everybody who knew me knew uh, what I stood for. Everybody knew that I was a Pharisee. Some people knew that at one time I was against this whole thing. So he has a unique perspective because at one time he he spent his life trying to shut it down. And now, having met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he's ready to give his life to promote the gospel. And he wants to tell others of the hope that he has in Christ. And so this is why he's on trial. Hope here is kind of a shorthand for the gospel. Okay? The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. We've been talking about that in the past weeks, Jesus dying for our sins. He came and he died, taking our punishment upon himself. Not only that, but he, uh, he paid the ransom price to free us from our old lives that were dominated by the enemy, by sin. By, by, um, by bondage to the world, and he's, he's freed us from that. So that's accomplished. But it means very little to us if we can't have a relationship with the one who gives us life. And so he rose from the dead, and this is all part of that hope that he died for our sins according to the Scripture. On the third day, he rose again. Him rising from the dead would say a few things to his generation, but sometimes might miss ours. One of the things that him rising from the dead meant is that everything that Jesus taught was vindicated. Okay? In other words, is proved to be right. He rose from the dead. Nobody had done that, not in that way. And so what he was saying was vindicated and proved to be right. His offering was accepted. They would have understood that whatever offering he was giving in terms of laying out the sacrifice that he came back from the dead, his offering is accepted. His suffering is vindicated, that he suffered and it was vindicated. You remember one of the objections in the, uh, when Paul would go about is people would say to him, yes, but how can you explain the fact that Jesus died on a tree? Doesn't Deuteronomy, I think 17, 17, somewhere around there, uh, that's not correct. It's in 23, maybe 23, 23. It's one of those weird things where the chapter and the verse are the same. Uh, it says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so people had a problem with that, especially Jewish people who knew the scriptures. Like, how can you say he's the Messiah? He's under the curse. And Paul says he's cursed 
for us. That wasn't his curse. That was our curse that he bore on the tree. So he took it upon himself. And so him rising from the dead shows that his suffering is vindicated. He didn't suffer as one who was just simply under God's displeasure. He was, but he was proved to be right in his suffering. His victory is demonstrated. He was victorious over death. His Davidic promise is fulfilled that the throne would never depart ultimately from David uh, is shown in the resurrection. He lives on for eternity. His authority is made clear and his divinity is demonstrated. And so we see all of this in the resurrection of Christ. This is what the hope is about. The hope is that shorthand for everything that Jesus accomplished in the cross. Uh, N.T. Wright in one of his books says, Jesus uh, is demonstrated through the resurrection as Lord of the world. God's gospel is good news that the covenant has been fulfilled in the new creation, revealing Jesus as, uh, as Israel's Messiah. Jesus was therefore Lord of the world, and Caesar was not. This was not just a message which Paul had been given to pass on, not as a postman, ignorant of the dramatic. You know, when you get, hopefully when you get a letter in the mail, uh, your postal delivery person hasn't read through it, right? Okay, and so he's saying Jesus, that Paul's not just a postman that's, delivering a message that he knows nothing about, but he understands all of what this means. He understands the life-changing content of the message. It was a message by which his own life was itself defined, shaped, and controlled from the inside as well as the outside. So can we really believe in the resurrection of Christ if that hope doesn't somehow transform us? For Paul, going from a critic of Christianity to its biggest promoter, going from somebody who was doing whatever he wanted to now serving Christ, it shows that the hope changed him. Can we really say that we believe the hope if we're not changed by it? I don't mean like you you believe in the resurrection and now you got to change your job and you got to move to a different house and or a different city or something like that. But it's this kind of fundamental change that happens to who you are and how you think as a result of a new hope. It happened uh, in Peter in light of the resurrection. Peter at one time was afraid to talk even to the, the little servant girl and tell her that he was a follower of Jesus. But I know in addition to knowing the resurrection, he also received the power of the Holy Spirit. But the resurrection transforms how we think. The two on the road to Emmaus, you never met two more depressed and sad-sacked individuals as you do the two on the road to Emmaus, whoever they were, okay? They're walking. You can hear the Charlie Brown song playing in the background. You know what I mean? And they've got their head slumped down, their shoulders slumped, and they're, they're depressed. And Jesus walks up next to them, the resurrected uh, Christ walks up next to them. What, what's going on? Have you not heard what's going on? Are you the only person who's not heard about what's going on? Jesus begins to open up the scriptures from his memory, telling what the Messiah must do and suffer and explaining all that. And they come to a place and they stop and they begin to eat and then they break bread. And as, they, as he breaks bread, their eyes are open and they realize who he is. And you've never seen such transformation as those two sad individuals coming to 
realize the hope that they found in Jesus, that they'd put all of their hope on him, only they thought to be disappointed, but later to find out that that hope was not wasted. You know, hope in Christ is never wasted. It's never wasted. Even if it looks like you've reached a dead end, it's not a dead end. This, is, this goes way back to Isaiah when it says, a shoot will grow up out of the stump of Jesse. I remember next door to us, one of our neighbors, they cut off, it, I think from recollection, maybe it was a mountain ash, they cut the, the tree off in the yard to a little stump. And so that's the image that comes to mind when I read this. And you know what a stump means? It means a dead tree. Are you with me? It means a dead tree, doesn't it? Okay, except for the fact that it says now there's a little shoot that has grown up out of this. It looked like David's lineage was cut off, but a little shoot grows up out, and that becomes the branch. That becomes the tree upon which the kingdom is built. You understand? It looks like it's a dead end, but it's not a dead end. Hope is never lost with Jesus. There's a fundamental change that takes place in us. It happens to Peter. It also by the way, happens to James. Not James, John's brother, James, Jesus' brother. The Bible tells us that, uh, that James was, uh, it tells us that his brothers, even his brothers didn't believe in him. That's kind of a sad endorsement, isn't it? Like, against Jesus, a mark against Jesus, it would seem. But when he's raised from the dead, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, and he appeared to James. Listen, if you're studying with our young adults the book of James, James was not always a believer. But you can bet that when he saw the resurrected Christ, he knew Jesus was Lord. It transformed him. It transformed Paul. Has it happened to you? If, there's, if there were just one thing here that we could say from the resurrection story that you could just take away and explain it away, you still have uh, so many other things to uh, contend with. Some want to pick apart the Gospels and say, well, in one story it's two angels, and in the other story it's one angel. And I want to just address that for a moment because you might read both of those and say, well, look, the Bible contradicts itself. Uh, there's a, there was a uh, Harvard lawyer named Simon Greenleaf who wrote a book about the testimonies of the four Gospels. And he said, this is consistent with what you see of eyewitnesses. That when, if they all came in saying exactly the same thing, you would think there was corroboration. But when they come in and some of the details may be slightly different, you probably have a genuine testimony here. And so there's a building at Harvard now called the Simon J. Greenleaf Center of Law, something like that. It's a law building there. He was a devout Christian. He believed because of the testimonies of the gospel writers that Jesus had died and risen to life. So you take away one thing, there's always something else that kind of moves in. You know, like it's when you dig sand out, it always tends to kind of fill back in. So we have uh, in Jesus' corner the prophecies. The scriptures talk about him not seeing corruption in the grave. Okay, We have prophecies that point to his resurrection. We have the appearances of uh, the individuals that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, it says up to 500. We have the empty tomb with no body. That by itself, that doesn't mean that he was raised. But that with the other stuff, that's a hard thing to dispute. We have the Jerusalem church preaching and growing just right there in the vicinity where all this happened. 
The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ all happened in that vicinity. And yet, the gospel took off there. If somebody could have gone to the tomb and found the body of Jesus, don't you think that those who opposed would have shut that down? But they could not. It's hard to have a growing church in Acts chapter 2 when you've got the body of Jesus laying in a tomb nearby. You have the impact of changed lives. The Apostle Paul, Peter, you have uh, some of those early Christians that uh, were living one direction in their life and, and uh, changed their life to follow him. You have the changed lives of people that are here that have encountered Jesus and their lives are different as a result of that. And, and, and I know that, uh, you know, sometimes we think of people who like have come out of drug addiction and alcohol addiction and like the, the worst kind of lifestyle and now they're following, that that's a great testimony. And it is. But every testimony of somebody coming to Jesus, in fact, I think probably the hardest thing to break often is a self-righteous, proud person who's grown up and thinks they're okay. They've grown up in church, they think they're okay. But they haven't really surrendered to Jesus. So, But you have changed lives. You have people who were going one direction, and they used to be surly and mean and abrasive, and they've come to Jesus, and now they're sweet, and there's a sweetness that comes from knowing him. You have the presence of the church around the world. Uh, there's a guy that teaches at Penn State University who's named uh, Philip Jenkins. He said that uh, he believes in the year 2050, there will be one billion spirit-filled Christians. Now, I want to make a distinction here. That's not just Christians. That's people who believe the power of the Spirit can come upon them. That's a subset of Christianity. That's a subset of believers. He thinks in the year 2050, there will be one billion spirit-filled believers. I hope that's the category you find yourself in. That's a lot of people. And I know that God only knows the number of people that are in the world that are really truly following him, but the estimates right now are somewhere around 2 billion out of 8. That tells me the gospel is making advances. And we might look out and say, well, it seems like we're in decline in our country. That's true. Western Europe, the United States, or North America has in some ways tried to push God out. But I want you to know that the gospel is growing like wildfire in, in the Far East, in Africa, in South America. God is doing something big, and the polarity of global Christianity has shifted from north to south. And the southern church is doing amazing things for God. And so don't be discouraged, Christians. Hope is on the rise, and the fire is still spreading. And so don't be discouraged by what we see nearby. Let's do our part. Let's hold steady. Sometimes the church is in advance, and other times it needs to be in a place where it holds its ground. And God will win all victories. All right, we have the dedication of followers who are willing to go to their own deaths. We have the writings, uh, the early Christian creed that I mentioned, and I want to talk more about the writings in just a moment. So this is this is Paul's defense. He's he's giving his defense of the gospel, and then we have him his description of his encounter. We're not going to read through all of that. But this is where the transformation takes place. On the road to Damascus, he encounters the risen Christ. For Paul, it was on the road to Damascus. For some, it was on the road to Emmaus. To others, the road to an empty tomb. But somewhere, somebody met Jesus, and it changed their life. 
Think about that. Paul on the road to Damascus, two on the road to Emmaus, others on the road to the empty tomb. They came to look for him. And remember, Mary is crying, and Jesus, she thinks Jesus is the gardener. And he says, Mary. And she's like, oh, it's you, Lord. He's like, "Uh, hold off. I've not yet ascended, whatever that means. For all of us, this encounter comes on the road that leads to destruction. We need a risen Savior, thank God. J.I. Packer says, Jesus is not just a historical memory, one who's dead and yet speaks as a model and a mentor like Abel. He's a living Savior, a loving Master, and an everlasting friend to all who trust Him. It changes, this changes Paul, this encounter changes Paul from a rebel to a servant, from an enemy to a friend. God, if he, if we'll allow him to, if we'll encounter him as the resurrected Christ, he'll transform us. He'll change us to be more like him. And it's in him that we have life. And we don't have to because we're trusted in Christ. We don't have to fear and we don't have to despair. Let me justify that. If uh, Jesus is your Savior, he's conquered our biggest problem. Okay, All other problems are secondary compared to the fact that we're one day going to die. Because when you die, you would think, if you're looking at it from a naturalistic level, all the other problems aren't so important anymore. Right? It's, it's death. That's the big enemy. If he's taking care of that. That means in our living, we're dealing with lesser problems. And you might have a lot of lesser problems, but you know in the end, the big problem has been taken care of. And so we can still live with hope because we're not conquered by those things. Your worst day always has a better day ahead when you're trusting in Jesus. Thank God for that. And so that's, that's where hope is. Hope is not like it was with the Greeks who they thought of hope as um, some kind of wishful thinking, like they used it derogatorily, like, oh, he's got hope. But what they mean is that it's fanciful thinking. Christian hope is not like that. It's something that holds on and has confirmation. It believes in something that's solid and real. And by the way, I don't think that we just have faith in faith. I think that there's real good reasons for trusting in Christ. I think there are facts that we can base our faith upon. So we're trusting in what Christ has actually done. I think that's the uh, tenor of the New Testament is that it's not faith without evidence. We have evidence, but then we have to make a decision with what we're going to do with that and respond to it. Finally, the message, verse 19 through 27. The message of the resurrection is for everyone. If you look at verse 19 with me here, it says, so King Agrippa, Paul is saying, I wasn't disobedient to the vision from heaven. He obeyed what Jesus told him to do. Verse 20, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. And so uh, Paul's message is that the resurrection is for everyone. Verse 22 says, God has helped me this very day so that I stand here to testify to small and great alike. As he's standing in, the, in Festus's court, there's kings and their servants. And Paul is proclaiming the gospel to them. And the gospel isn't just for the great, and it's not just for the poor. It's for everyone. It's for Jew and Gentile alike. So the message of the resurrection is hope for everybody without without, uh, favoritism. 
The message of the resurrection is a call to change. Look again with me at verse 20 here. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll see this. I preached to all of these people that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by deeds. This, is, this means that our belief in the resurrection is not a passive assent in which we say, oh yeah, I agree with that. I believe uh, in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we go through the creed and we come to that part. Uh, on the third day he rose again, crucified under Pontius Pilate, third day he rose again. Yeah, I agree with that. It has to go deeper than that. This is the call of the gospel, is that it goes much deeper. It's a call to change. Repentance is uh, a word that means change of mind followed by a change of life. Okay? And so when Paul says here, uh, I preach that you should repent and turn to God, that's the first direction of turning. It's turning to God and by turning to God away from our sins. And he says it needs to be demonstrated by our deeds. In other words, as we turn to God, it ought to reflect in our behavior that we're followers of God. This is the message of the resurrection is true change. And if you go through the book of Romans, you find that this same metaphor is placed upon our lives, that our life before Christ is one that has been crucified with Christ, and our life following that is a new life that has been given to us because of the resurrection. So that's the, par- that's the picture for us of what the Christian life should look like. We, we once lived in these, these behaviors, and now we're dead to that. It doesn't mean you can't sin after you're You've come to trust in Christ and you know about the resurrection. It means that that life no longer has to have a hold on you and you're going a new direction now. The message of the gospel is prophesied in the law and the prophets. He talks about his message being um, prophesied in the law and the prophets. Look at verse 22 with me here. It says, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here to testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing that's beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul is summarizing here, and he uses a phrase that's typical. Jesus uses it, and others in the New Testament use it. But uh, when you hear law and prophets, this is shorthand for the Old Testament. They didn't usually use the word Old Testament. Uh, this is shorthand. When you say law and prophets, sometimes they said law, prophets, and writings. Uh, but here, law and prophets was sufficient that you could finish it in your mind and know. He's talking about the Old Testament. Okay? And so uh, Moses in particular and the prophets, they spoke to the fact that Jesus would come and he would die and he would rise again. So he's appealing to that, that this message is not just based upon uh, historical evidence. It's there. But there's also evidence in Scripture uh, that shows that he will rise again. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, it talks about him rising again, that he would see the light of life beyond his sufferings. And other places refer to the same thing. And then I'd like you to notice, finally, and this is one of the things that's been really stirring on my heart lately, the message of the resurrection is a public message. It's not intended to be packed away and hidden in churches. This is a public message. And it's also an invitation for the world to evaluate it. See for yourselves. You, all the evidence is out there. Look at verse 26 with me. Paul says to 
to King Agrippa. Uh, the king is familiar. He actually says it to Festus, but he's talking about King Agrippa. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Jesus wasn't crucified back in the woods somewhere where nobody could see it. They took him outside of Jerusalem in a place where the road passed by, and they hung him on a cross, and it was public for everyone to see. The Bible says that people passing by said things to him. It was visible. It was in a place for everyone to see. It was not done in a corner. It was on public display. The facts are on display. Christianity is not something which is done in a corner. This is not a secret society in which we have hidden information that's only for the initiated. That if you get in, then we'll tell you the real secrets about what Christianity is about. It's out there. It's available for any of us to evaluate. You can take it in and evaluate it for yourself. You can read the histories. You can read those who've written on both sides of it, and it goes all the way back. I used to have this uh, thought that, man, the Gospels are so old and how can we trust that? And I, got, I went to Bible college and realized that there is a steady stream of writing that goes from the time of the uh, Greek philosophers all the way to our day, and we have, we have a lot of it. Do you understand what I mean by that? That it's not like the, the Gospels came and the New Testament, and then there's like this massive period of silence that we have to get through some dark ages. And then now we're here as moderns, and we got to reach way back into antiquity and, and pull out of the Gospels these truths. There's a steady stream of writing. After the New Testament, these aren't authoritative, but after the New Testament, we have the testimony of the church fathers. First, the Greek fathers who testified to this, and then you have the Latin fathers, and then you have theologians that develop. They, there's a continuous stream of knowledge that's come down to our day, so we're not reaching back, groping in the dark for something here. This has been testified and affirmed over and over again through history. Jesus is the most written about person in all of history. Do you know that? That we have more documents. We have more ancient documents on Jesus than any other figure. More than Julius Caesar. Nobody doubts Julius Caesar existed. No honest historian doubts Jesus' existence. They speculate over the resurrection because that's a hard one to swallow. And many people, for many people who are uh, moderns or postmoderns, wonder, can you really believe in a miracle? And they start with the idea that miracles aren't real, and then they evaluate the miracle and say, well, I can't believe in that because it's a miracle. And it's a circular argument. And what we need to do is ask of the evidence, what does the evidence say? We have more testimony to the fact that Jesus lived and died and rose again than we do of any other fact in history. The writings of the New Testament are the best attested documents of the ancient world. Uh, if you'd like to know more about that, F.F. F. Bruce's book, New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? And I think in there he compares um, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, how many, how many um, manuscripts we have of that. He might compare in that book... Um, a little bit like Julius Caesar's writings, and I don't know if he mentions Tacitus and some of the other historians from those days. But nobody doubts the historicity of that stuff. But for some reason, when it comes to the Gospels, we want to be hands-off, and people want to say, well, I don't know if I can trust that. But it's the only evidence that we have. 
And the Bible itself continues to be validated by archaeology and discoveries of history, which are still being made. Uh, All of these facts are on display as a matter of history. They're on display in the witness of the church. They're on display in the lives of believers. And the nature of events like this is that the event happens and time continues to move forward. How many times does Jesus need to come and die on the cross and rise again? Just one time. And then what we have to do is we have to either... We have to evaluate the witnesses. What have they said? Because we're not there. How many were alive when Pearl Harbor was bombed in December 7, 1941? I wasn't. Do you believe it? And why? What, on what authority do you have to believe that? I had some eyewitness accounts of that taking place. The only other alternative besides that is some kind of historical skepticism in which nothing has ever happened except what's happened that I've witnessed to. And that's a really shallow and narrow existence. At some point, we have to trust an authority. And I want to encourage you, the New Testament documents have been poured over again and again and again, and they've been found reliable. C.S. Lewis, who uh, was a uh, Cambridge scholar, he first went to Oxford and taught there, but then he, he went to Cambridge and he taught Renaissance literature, and he evaluated the Gospels, and he said at the end of uh, having looked through them, he said, this isn't like anything that I've read. This isn't like fiction. And he said, I've read all the fiction. He read the classics. He knew all of that. He said, there's something different about this. It's something you can put your life upon. And he didn't want to become a Christian, but he felt the divine presence pressing on him, and he felt that he was dragged into the kingdom kicking and screaming, the most reluctant convert in all of England. And he couldn't, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't be intellectually dishonest. He had to turn to Jesus because he believed the facts pointed that way. Some of the critics of the resurrection prefer to take an I-don't-know approach in appealing to other real evidence. The late Anthony Flew, who was a, an atheist, he said in a debate with Gary Habermas, I uh, was asked to give another non-miraculous explanation for what happened to Jesus if it wasn't a miraculous event. And he said, I would contend that there are an enormous lot of things that we simply haven't got the evidence to know about. In other words, I don't have another explanation, but I'm not going to believe that. Here's the interesting thing. By the time the Anthony Flew passed away, 2010, uh, he was always debating Christians. He became a believer in God. I don't know if he became a Christian. He, belie- he became a believer in God by the end of his life, and everybody was shocked. He was writing books that were criticizing the four horsemen of atheism, you know, like Daniel Dennett and Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris. He criticized their methodology and their approach, uh, but ultimately he became a believer in God. And, of course, I want to mention that there, are, there is the evidence of the good of believing the resurrection has done in our world. Um, And I know there's a dark side to Christian history, and the church has to own its failures, I know. But those failures are failures of people and not the failure of God. People will answer, uh, they'll answer to God for the misuse of his name. And I think the punishment will be worse for them than those who've never heard. It seems to me an explanation for this is something like, why, why did bad things happen in the name of the church? 
I, I think of it like this, that when a freshwater river flows into the ocean, okay, you're getting fresh confronting the salty water, right? And what do you have right at that convergence? You have brackish water. You have a mixture that takes place. And I think sometimes when the gospel is confronting culture because it's, it's working through frail humanity, sometimes you get brackish waters and you get failures. But that doesn't, that doesn't um, malign the fresh water that's behind it all. Do you understand what I mean by that? That in Christianity, what Christ is really offering us is genuine and pure, even if we as his representatives not always done well with it. So let me point out the other side to this. It's like when you climb a mountain and you're sitting on the top of it and you can't see the depths from which you rose. Sometimes when you're hunting, it's necessary to get off your machines and climb a hill, right? Sometimes when you climb, you can lose track of how far you've really come. And especially when there's still some distance to go, it takes a clearing to really look back and see where you've risen from. And maybe you can see your four-wheeler down there or something way off in the distance. And I think sometimes people criticize Christianity from the heights to which they've climbed on the back of Christianity. Think about what Christianity has done for our world, believing in the resurrection and being transformed and lives coming to follow Jesus Relative peace in nations. You say, well, there's still trouble in our world. Yes, but do you remember, do you know what the world was like before Christianity? Do you know what it was like? The barbarianism that took place and was not even winked at, was not even thought to be. When in Roman society, which they consider themselves very civilized, they could just throw their baby girl out on the road and leave it, and that was okay. Because they didn't want a girl, they wanted a boy. And we are appalled by that idea. Why? Because Jesus has taught us the value of humanity, that every person has the image of God stamped upon them. We're encouraged to productivity. Probably one of the things that drove the the, uh, wealth of the United States was a Protestant ethic that we should work hard to the glory of God. Gives rise to science out of the conception of an ordered universe. Um, Science as we know it would not have been possible if it had not been for Christianity. If you had the world of uh, polytheistic gods, you would have never thought this world was ordered. But when they found that there is, you know, they believed like Isaac Newton for one, believes there's a God uh, one God in the universe, and if he if he's the God that the Bible describes him as, this universe must be ordered, and if it's ordered, we must be able to dis- discern something about it. And that laid the framework for science as we know it. It's given value to individuals, caused the rise of orphanages and hospitals. You know, they used to have a cult called the cult of Asclepius, in which if you were wealthy, you could go and seek some kind of medical help. But the idea that somebody should care for the sick even if they can't afford it, that's a Christian idea. Christians encourage universal education. There was education before Christianity, but uh, it was for the wealthy and those that could afford it. But the idea that we should teach everybody to read so they can read the Word of God is a Christian idea. Christianity promotes the dignity of women. 
You might say, well, it looks sometimes like it, it oppresses women. That's because we've forgotten how far we've climbed. Jesus first brought dignity to women. He let them sit at his feet like disciples. And then, and I know this is a bold statement, but he brings them in to equal status in the kingdom of God. There's neither male nor female. He's not saying he's erasing gender distinction. What he's saying is in terms of approach to God, there's not a hierarchy. And then he fought against the institution of slavery. Some would argue there that uh, Christianity promoted slavery, and I would suggest to you the seeds of the dissolution of slavery is found in the gospel. When Paul says to, an, uh, to, about, to Philemon about Onesimus, welcome him back, he's bringing dignity. He says, don't treat him as a slave anymore. Treat him as a brother. There's elevation that takes place there. And the trajectory was set to dissolve slavery because everybody is equal in God's eyes. And so um, you find people fighting against the cause of slavery using the Scripture. I'm thinking, of course, the trajectory of Christianity has, has set us on this course. There are instances where people in the name of Christ have tried to impede these, but the seeds of these are planted deep within Christianity that's founded upon the resurrection of Christ. And when followed, these seeds grow and they, they uh, shoot in a new direction and the plant cannot be uprooted from its soil without changing its form. It's all connected to what Christ has done. The seed was sown. Jesus said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. He laid his life down and died. And the fruit is seen around the world. And I want to just remind you again, we're in Anchorage, Alaska. If you know the geography, you can't get much farther away from Jerusalem than where we are. The gospel is reached even here. Today, you might agree or you might disagree, but the facts are out there for anyone to evaluate. And they call us to a decision about what we'll do with Jesus. Why don't we stand and let me... Uh, say a couple more things and we'll, we'll be done for today, but even with all the facts, there's a jumping off point. When I was probably 10 years old, I went to the swimming pool, and our swimming pool had a high dive, okay, and I, I don't know if you did a lot of swimming when I was a kid, but I did enough swimming as a kid that I don't ever have to do it again, and I'll be happy. I've hit my head on the bottoms of pools, diving in, and hurt myself, and done everything a kid would do in a swimming pool, <laughs> for better or worse, right? And uh, when I was 10, I went to the local pool and climbed the diving board, the, the high dive. We had a low diving board, and then we had a high one that was 10 feet up. doesn't seem like it's that high now, but back then, that was really, really high. And so it was 10 feet, and the, the water that we were diving into was going to be 10 feet. And you knew that it was safe. You knew there weren't sharks in the water. But you have all that knowledge, and you still get up there, and there's fear. Sometimes you know all that you need to know, and it still takes a risk to jump. Right? Jesus rising from the dead. You can look through all of the 
information, all of the facts that are put on display, all of the historical witness that's there, there still has to come a moment in which we take a risk, where we step out, where we jump, and we ask, God, will you, will you take my life into your hands? I want to trust you with it. So I'm asking today, are we willing to jump? Maybe you've made that decision already. If that's you, I hope that you'll be encouraged to know that the resurrection means that we can have hope and we don't have to despair. I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope today will be celebration. If it's not celebration, it's not because it's not celebratory or or worthy of celebration. It's usually because we're not getting it. And so God help us to get it so that we'll celebrate. If we're Christian. If you're not, today you can celebrate. Today can be the day at which we jump off and take that risk. And trust in what Christ has done. Christ's death for, for you and me means that our sins can be forgiven. And his life means that he can lead us as a savior in real relationship with him. Without that resurrection, there's no real lordship. There's no real leadership. But because he's raised, we can trust him and we can walk with him. And that's what I want to invite you to today. Why don't we bow our heads for just a moment? I want to ask you today if you are just feeling the, that tug in your heart. Maybe your mind, in your mind you know it's right, the right thing to do. To really trust in Christ. You've been doing it your way. Been living for yourself. But there's a point at which we've done that enough that it kind of comes to an end. It's no longer fulfilling. And it's because we're not living in the fulfillment that God can give. Would you be willing today to say, Lord, I want to trust you. I'm turning away from my my life. I'm turning to you. I'm turning away from my sin. I'm turning to you. Be merciful to me. God of mercy, be merciful to me because of Jesus. Simple prayer like that will put you in relationship with God. Be merciful to me because of Jesus. Because he died, because he rose again. Be merciful to me because of Jesus. And really turn to him. If you prayed a prayer like that today, I'd like to I'd like to talk with you after. I'd like to know about it. I'd like to be able to encourage you and help you to find the next step after this. We'd like to just praise the Lord today. We're going to sing a song here, and as we do that, these altars are open. If you'd like to come pray, that means an altar is just a place where we come and kneel and say, the Lord, this is my life, and I'm trusting you with it. It's a place where we pray prayers and we lay things down, and we come to walk in Him, and our faith is strengthened. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.